Hello, I'm Chris Sarley, Investment Research Analyst at Fund Calibre, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Praveen Kumar, Manager of the Elite-Rated Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon Investment Trust. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Um, you mentioned in your latest report that the Japanese market takes a dim view of management investing in the business at the expense of profitability. Um, so a couple of things come to mind with that. Firstly, is that not a positive thing for investing in the future? And, or is it simply something that the company wants to do maybe to pay dividends instead? Maybe just give us your view on that to start with. Yeah, sure. Um, so typically, the type of companies that we would invest in would be quite immature, <clears throat> fast-growing businesses. And as you can expect, a lot of these businesses need to continuously invest in you know in that growth. We use a term called growth strain for that uh, particular attribute. Now, quite often, uh, especially in Japan, what we've seen, companies are generally very, very risk-averse. So they take a very, very conservative view of things, of their business. Um, if there is an opportunity, uh, a new growth opportunity, they generally are very slow to kind of exploit that. So those uh, more traditional type businesses are the ones we tend to avoid. What we are looking for are dynamic entrepreneurial businesses that are not afraid of taking risks. And for us, um, those businesses um, have the ability to kind of you know, invest in future growth at the expense of short-term profitability. For us, that's actually quite an admirable characteristic um, for management teams to have and something that's in very much short supply as far as Japan is concerned. So for us, the key metric is not so much profitability, but sales growth. Mm-hmm. So as long as a company is growing its sales at a pretty fast pace, we tend to be fairly relaxed about where the profitability is at the moment. Mm-hmm. We take the very long-term view that eventually, once the company matures, the profitability or the returns profile of the company would look completely different from what it is today. So that's really the underlying um, philosophy uh, for a lot of the businesses that we invest in. Okay. Um, you also talk about how over the past decade, more entrepreneurs have started businesses across lots of different sectors, which has sort of increased your sort of opportunity set. Um, what's caused this sh- uh, shift? And can you give us maybe a couple of examples that stand out? Yeah, sure. So this goes back to the point I made about um, Japanese society in general being very, very risk averse. Um, and we've seen that not just in corporate Japan, but, you know, Japanese people in general. Um, you know, I can give you examples of whether it's adoption of, you know, e-commerce or new forms of payment. Things generally tend to change very, very slowly in Japan. But the caveat being once people cotton on to something, then the adoption tends to be very rapid. So that's probably the reason why Japan is still one of the largest users of cash. So the cash-based economy in Japan is about you know, 80, 80 to 85 percent. Um, whereas if you take the other extreme, you know, something like Sweden is probably gone 100 percent cashless, or you know, pretty much close to it. And even here in the UK, for us, we are seeing increasing amount of transactions done by contactless, you know, credit cards, cashless mechanisms. So there has been a trend- tendency to kind of be very, very cautious, conservative risk averse. But over the past kind of 10, 15 years, what we've seen gradually change is just the types of people who are coming in and take, taking the risk to start businesses. Quite often, these tend to be younger entrepreneurs who maybe would have studied overseas or would have had some work experience overseas. 
and they've got a feel for you know how things are done in other markets, the dynamism they witnessed firsthand, and some of those best practices they try and bring back to Japan. Yeah. And also the support level from the government. I mean, there's been a creeping realization that you know this the way Japan has functioned as a society, you know, as, as a corporate entity so far is no longer going to be fit for purpose. Mm-hmm. So Japan wants to become more competitive especially in the non-manufacturing space. So in the manufacturing space, it's still, you know, a world leader. But in the non-manufacturing space, they do really need to kind of, you know, encourage these types of risk-taking, young, dynamic businesses. So one example would be, you know, a business like Snowpeak, which is a high-end manufacturer of camping equipment. So nothing to do with online or AI or, you know, SaaS or any of these buzzwords that you tend to hear nowadays. Uh, and this is run by a father and daughter duo. And this business was started quite a few years ago by the grandfather of, you know, the current president. And it started off as a very much a cottage industry, you know, very small businesses just serving the local population. But once the father took over, uh, the current president took over and his daughter came on board, they started expanding more aggressively, creative ways of, you know, marketing. So they don't just bombard people with marketing messages. They actually lease massive plots of uh, land and build camping sites on those to try and encourage people to actually come and experience it for themselves before they decide to actually buy the stuff. So quite a unique way of marketing uh, what is a very high-end attractive proposition. So that's a classic example of, you know, a dynamic entrepreneur, you know, along with sort of um, his family trying to grow a business beyond just Japan. Okay. Um, I want to turn to the portfolio quickly. Um, you recently added a new stock called Kamakura Shinsho, yeah. um, which offers end-of-life services, which you know, on the face of it is a little grim, but maybe tell us more about it and the, the opportunity there. Yes, so, I mean, I would I always like to say that Kamakura Shinsho is a bit of a morbid investment case. <laughs> so you could think of this as an online version of Dignity, you know, the funeral service we have here in the UK. So in Japan, uh, the funeral services and, you know, kind of related uh, services um, are very, very traditional with probably near to 0% uh, penetration in terms of IT or new technologies. And this also tends to be a very, very large and opaque industry. So there's absolutely no, no regulation, no price transparency. And this industry tends to have local monopolies. So families choosing to go to the same funeral parlor across generations because, you know, they know they know the guy running the, uh, the, the business and there's some family connection as well. So this kind of a relationship um, format, what that this has meant that is these companies get away with charging some really egregious prices, especially at a vulnerable time for these families and families, you know, in times and expect them to kind of, you know, shop around, etc. It's quite, quite a difficult time for families, as you can imagine. So this happens all across Japan. And Kamakura Shinsho is trying to kind of disrupt this entire kind of traditional way of doing sort of business. So through its online website, it's... Um, brought in uh, a very high level of price transparency. Customers can pick and choose their kind of um, the products that they want. Quite often they're flogged really unnecessary products by these funeral parlors, which they don't end up using. So you can literally customize the package um, based on your budget or, you know, how many relatives you want to invite, how big a venue you want to kind of, kind of secure, all those sorts of things. And along with that, um, price transparency and the ability to customize packages, Kamakura Shinsho is also expanding into adjacent areas. 
So now they're starting uh, to offer services like inheritance tax planning. So if the deceased has left a considerable amount of money to you know his or her children, then you know how do you go about thinking through the tax implications, etc. So Kama Karoshincho helps families with that. If the deceased has left behind a spouse who might need some nursing care services, so Kama Karoshincho is now offering services where they actually help these families to place. Uh, the elderly member in nursing care uh, uh, close by. So they're, they're adding various bits and pieces um, with the view of becoming almost like an infrastructure provider, a one-stop shop for everything to do with uh, inner-flight services. And do they have to be careful about how quickly they, they do that? You mentioned Japan's slow to change, so they have to sort of do it sort of brick by brick for you without sort of shooting ahead quickly. Yes, that's absolutely right. And that is why... Some people get awfully upset saying, you know, there is such a massive opportunity. Why isn't this business growing much faster? I think what people tend to forget is there is quite there's a considerable amount of work that needs to be done before you get to that really rapid growth phase. And that work involves speaking to a number of stakeholders, getting them onto your platform. In many ways, you're also not just helping the, the vendors with a new channel for marketing in terms of online, but you're also becoming a bit of a competitor. Mm -hmm. So how do you balance that kind of dynamic? So there are quite a few nuances that people just tend to forget. It's not as simple as, you know, you build a site, throw a whole bunch of uh, marketing dollars at this and off you go. It it doesn't really work like that in the real world. So for us, the exciting is once you've done the hard work and once you've established yourself as the go-to player, you become almost, you know, your position becomes really, really strong. So for someone else to come in, to start from scratch, build those relationships, even if someone comes in with a low-cost offering, there'll be very little incentive for these vendors and families to switch if they've gotten so used to using Kamakura Shinsho services. And we've seen this replicated across a number of other sectors, across a number of our holdings. So it's just a case of trying to be patient and supportive with these types of young businesses, giving management time and space to actually uh, try and mature and build the business model. Okay. Um, just quickly on the fact that Japan now has a new prime minister in the recent, mm-hmm. fairly recently, um, are you hopeful that the stability and structural changes in Japan will continue or do you still have concerns, particularly obviously in your sphere of investing? Yeah, I mean, uh, our kind of investment style and philosophy, not just for the Japanese small cap funds, but across Japan and across Pelifer, is um, focused more on the individual company attraction. So, you know, bottom-up stock picking, which means that for over the long term, we try and take politics and all these macroeconomic factors out of the equation. So effectively, what we're trying to do is pick companies that will grow at a serious space over long periods of time, irrespective of what happens um, uh, in, in the external environment. So in that context, for a lot of our companies, yes, supportive government policies have been helpful at the margin, but they are not really um, going to drive the long-term success of these businesses. I always like to say, especially in the small caps, the kind of companies we invest in will live and die by their own decisions. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it doesn't matter if we get a very dynamic prime minister or if we get, you know, a kind of reasonably average sounding prime minister and what their policies are, they perhaps are unlikely to have a significant impact on the long-term ability of companies to grow. Uh, I mean, having said that, 
in recent years, there have been some helpful policies that have been instituted. So things like deregulation, um, corporate governance related reforms, all those things uh, were instituted quite a few years ago. But now they've become more or less as you know business as usual accepted practices. So they don't really need a fresh round of regulatory change. So in that sense, the new prime minister, although I might not rate him too highly, but I don't think that that is likely to have any significant bearing on the uh, stocks that we own. And just lastly, obviously, we've been living in extraordinary times for the last sort of well, best part of two years now. Um, in sort of a normal world, how often do you visit Japan? And could you maybe tell us what's the, where's the most sort of interesting place in Japan you visited in your time? Yeah, sure. So typically every member of the Japanese team um, visits Japan at least twice a year. And we typically go for sort of two to three weeks. Um, when I sort of uh, started uh, running the small cap funds about six odd years ago, I tried to do something different. So I went with my family to Japan for six weeks. So we took a service department and stayed in Tokyo. And I used to do kind of four to five meetings every single day through using the Tokyo Metro. And my wife and son used to sort of go off to a nearby nursery and roam around and come back. And this was kind of my routine. And I had memorized every single train station starting from my place all the way to the last station. So a bit like memorizing the Piccadilly line sort of uh, stations in London. Um, so I've done that on two occasions and it was, you know, a fantastic experience. And, um, I mean, the most interesting place I've been to is, um, it, it's kind of, um, off the beaten track, but it's a place called Totori, which is a very small kind of prefecture. There was a company called Nippon Ceramic, which makes sensors for cars that uh, I own in the portfolio and uh, went to visit management. And they have some amazing sand dunes in Totori, which supposedly are quite, quite famous. I, I never knew about that. Um, but it was quite interesting just to see kind of people always talk about, you know, Japan always being about, you know, uh, the big cities and, you know, population migrating to the big cities. But even in a small place like Totori, you actually could see uh, quite a large number of really small scale cottage industries just wheeling away and, you know, doing their stuff and, it certainly didn't feel to me like I was, you know, in 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 in, in a kind of a very isolated area, and it had a pretty vibrant economy, a pretty vibrant feel to it. That was kind of the more interesting observation for me from that trip. Okay, that's great, Kareem. Thank you very much for joining us today. No worries. Thanks for having me, Chris. Cheers. And if you'd like to learn more about the Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon Investment Trust, please visit fundcaliber.com. Please remember. We've been discussing individual stocks to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these stocks at your time of listening.